What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Matthew chapter 12, verses 38 through 50. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be, three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mothers and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, church. Whether you're online joining us uh, via live stream or here in the room, it's great to have you. My name is Matt, one of the congregational pastors here downtown, and uh, let's jump right in. We have a lot going on this morning with communion, baptisms. It's exciting to be able to do um, kind of both of the ordinances that Christ gave us for the church to continue in every generation to remember his death and resurrection until he comes and our identification with his death and resurrection for our freedom, for our salvation. So we got a lot to do. Um, So let's just jump right in with imagining that we're drowning, okay? Welcome to Park Church. Imagine you're drowning, okay? Um, The water is washing over you. You know, maybe you've got heavy shoes on. You fell out a boat. You, You slipped off a bank into a stream or something. And you have this sense of like your lungs beginning to fill with water and fighting for breath, fighting for life. And suddenly someone throws you a life preserver, okay? Would you complain about the color of the throw rope? Would you, would you criticize this person for saying, I'm not gonna put this thing around my neck? Like, I don't need another burden. I've, I've carried one of these little rings outside the water. I know how heavy it is. What are you trying to do? Like, kill me? You know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't criticize the lifeguard's appearance. You wouldn't say, hey, before I grab this thing, let me just verify real quick that you're a real lifeguard. Like, can I see your certification? You would just grab the rope. You would just grab the life preserver and be saved. 
So we're jumping into a point in the story where Jesus has come to seek and save the spiritually lost and drowning. Okay, And we've already seen up to this point as he invites the weary, the broken, those who are heavily burdened down with the weight of their sin. He's like, just come and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. And it's, as we talked about a few weeks ago, it's a real yoke, but it's a buoyant yoke, like a life preserver. Like you put this on and there's work to do for my kingdom, but this will lift you up. This will save you. And we've seen to this point that in response to Jesus' invitation to all, come, find, rest, come, find healing, come be a part of a new kingdom and a new family, a new thing that God is doing in your place in this generation, some people are turning, some people are doing kind of what I just described. They're being critical. They're, they're making demands of Jesus. Like, hey, before I accept your gracious gift of salvation, let's just see. And the way I see this text this morning, and you notice probably in your Bibles, many of you, you probably see almost like three paragraphs, three things that in a sense could seem unrelated to one another, but I think they're communicating one theme. And what Matthew is doing in this section of scripture is he's kind of showing you these two responses to Jesus. So these would be my two big points. I mean, very simple outline this morning. Two big points. There's a contrast between the typical demands that we tend to place on Jesus so that we can justify not following Jesus. So typical demands. And then there's true discipleship. And what these two points are showing us first negatively and then positively, and here's kind of the one big idea that's woven all throughout. Jesus is saying, there is no substitute for centering your life on my presence. And it's that simple. He's just saying, there's no substitute. There's no close thing that's kind of like it that is a substitute for actually just centering your life on the presence of Jesus. So let's look first at the kind of negative. Let's get this out of the way. You know, looking at these, there are three typical demands here. And I'm just going to show you one from each little story. And what he's going to show you is that kind of the, the typical demands of people who are like, eh, I don't know if I want to like go all in following Jesus, is that you have religious posturing, you have religious practices, and you have religious pedigree. And you'll see that as we go through here, beginning with religious posturing. Look with me at verse 38 again, where these religious leaders, that's who these people were, the scribes and Pharisees are like the, the pastors, the rabbis, the teachers of everyone else. These are the religious leaders. And they're like, teacher, Jesus, we wish to see a sign from you. Now that in and of itself is not necessarily wrong. I mean, we want to sit here and we say, is that a sincere request or is that an insincere request? And we don't know unless we look at the context. So that's what we're going to do. In the context, going back to verse 22, because you notice um, our section that we read this morning kind of begins with like then, and it's a continuation of the same story going back to verse 22, where Jesus has brought this demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus heals him on the spot, opens his eyes, loosens his tongue. And the crowds of people are amazed. They're like, we see through a physical miracle, a spiritual truth, that Jesus is the one who has authority to open the eyes of the spiritually blind. And when our tongues are tied and we can't get out our praise and our obedience and our affirmation of God, Jesus is here to loosen those tongues 
so that we can praise him fully. So we see in a physical miracle, a spiritual truth of Jesus, just radical healing. Okay, and they're praising him and they're, they're in awe of him. You may remember in the same story that Miguel taught on last week that simultaneously as the crowds are in awe, the religious leaders are standing back saying, saying what? It's by the prince of demons that he casts out demons. In other words, you are in league with Satan. Now this is important because going back to the beginning, of, of, of an even fuller context going back to the beginning of chapter 11 is that John the Baptist, this other religious leader, but who was pointing the way to Jesus who was going to come, he's now imprisoned and life is not going the way he expected life to go. And he sends word from his disciples to Jesus and he says, look, are you the Messiah? Are you the one? Or did I just totally miss it? Because where's the liberation for our people that we expected if you're really the king and the Messiah and the one sitting on the throne of David? Where's our liberation? And why am I in prison if you're really the one? And do you remember what Jesus said? He says, go back and just tell John what you see and hear. And he says this, the blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up. And the implication in this text is that John the Baptist is like, you're right. This is exactly what the Old Testament said the Messiah would do when he came. So I believe but we come back to verse 38 and these particular religious teachers and they're seeing all of these miracles that John is in prison and John is not seeing these things happen, but they're seeing these things firsthand and still they're sitting back kind of with their arms folded and they're like, teacher, we would like to see a sign from you. Show us a sign. And what they're saying is number one, show us a sign on demand, on our terms. And number two, like the signs that you've been doing are not good enough. We need something categorically different. And we don't know what they wanted. Do you want like fire from heaven or something instead of just like a healing or a resurrection? But they're like, this isn't good enough. And the reason I call this religious posturing is that the religious leaders are posturing two ways. Number one, they are pretending to be sincere seekers of the truth. Jesus, if you just show us something, we would trust you. And you know it's not true. But a second way they're posturing is that they are positioning themselves actually as superior to Jesus. They're like, you answer to us. You play by our rules. You do what we say. And the implication is, if you do what we tell you to do, when we tell you to do it, well, then we'll believe you're the Messiah. Now, many of you are, in, are our parents in here, and many of you, like us, have actually thought through a parenting strategy of not just simply telling your kids what to do and what not to do, like what to say and what not to say, where to go and where not to go, but actually why like, what's the reason behind this? Because if our children of the next generation are going to take ownership of their own beliefs and convictions, it's important that they understand not just what, but why. But if you're parents, you also know that why can mean why, or it can also be a classic stall tactic. Like, they're not sincere in like, help me understand why we think this way, dad. They're just like, why? Why? And then you answer that question, they're like, why, 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 why? And you can tell really long stories and the, the question will always be why. And what that child is doing in a sense, it could be like a three-year-old power play. 
of like, I'm superior in some way to my parents. And I'm posturing as a sincere seeker of truth when after you parented for a while, you're like, nah, this, this is. And something I swore I would never ever say when I was like a teenager and then in college was like, I will never say because I told you so. And then you become an actual parent and at some point after you've answered why as thoughtfully as you can, like 50 times in a row, finally you're just like, because I said so, right? Um, this is what's going on here. That sometimes a question for God is just that. It's a question. And, and, and friends, God is big enough. He's patient enough that when we come with some mix of pride and humility, maybe, but we, it's like, I really want to understand. I want to know. He can handle our questions. He can handle our doubts and our fears and sit in that and be okay with that. But what's going on here is just a way to delay obedience. It was a way to hold Jesus at arm's length. It was a way to actually control him and ultimately to sit in judgment on him and say, you're not the Messiah. So what they're doing here is they're posturing. They're manipulating, they're stalling, they're demanding, they're, they're pretending to evaluate when in fact it was just about like, hey, we're better than you. By the way, this is why Jesus answers them so harshly. He sees their hearts and he's like, this is not a genuine why, help me understand. If I only saw a sign, I would believe. He, that he, he responds and says, you evil and adulterous generation. And doubtless they're like, wow, okay, Jesus, I was just asking a question. You know, we were just doing our due diligence before we pointed everyone to you. And Jesus is like, no, you're wicked because you've lost your first love for God and the actual thing that you serve. And the reason that I call you adulterers is you serve the God of self. And to the degree that I posture with you and let you be the superior one in this relationship, you'll probably be fine with me, but that's evil. See, the problem that we're talking about here is that when we ourselves, and can you see yourselves in this at all, that sometimes you're asking sincere questions of God in prayer. You're, you're crying out, maybe in pain, maybe in the middle of a trial. And you're like, God, help me understand what you're up to in my life. But are there maybe other times in your life where you're like, if you're really God, then I'm gonna need this promotion. I'm gonna need this date. I'm gonna need this person to say yes about this. I'm gonna need the pain to go away if you're really who you say you are. And the problem is God isn't at the center when we do that. What's at the center is our demand, our expectation. And whatever the object of our longing is, that's actually the thing that we've put our focus on and said, that is what I need more than God. So religious posturing is a way of not truly following Jesus, but putting him to the side. Now, moving on, Jesus tells this odd parable, and that's kind of what it is, a very short parable about someone who is demon-possessed. They've been freed from their demon possession. So what do they do? They, they decide, like, I'm going to hire the cleaning crew to come in. You know, now I got the vacancy. So this is the perfect time to get my life clean. They clean the house. They go all Marie Kondo. They organize. They get everything just so. And what happens is the demon goes off. He comes back, and he's like, wow, this is nice. Like you've cleaned up for me. So he goes get seven of his demon friends and brings them back. And now Jesus says, this person's future is worse than it ever was before. And the second dangerous way that we are making demands of Jesus is not only through religious posturing, but also through religious practices. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he's offering a social commentary. That's what it is. This parable is a social commentary and saying this entire generation is substituting moral self-reformation for true discipleship, simple faith. Okay, so the house in verse 44 is a picture of Israel in the days of Jesus. And far from being like just radically, rampantly immoral, terrible people, like Messiah didn't come on our terms, so we're mad, we'll just live however we want. On the contrary, they were pretty moral people. You know, attending synagogue and trying to keep the Torah, like the law of Moses, trying to keep things decently and in order. And if you're like, well, how is this a demand on God? It's because they're basically saying, look, we cleaned up the house. Now you need to come, right? It's like, it's like you're expecting a guest and you're like, hey, these people, these, these good friends that live in this other city, they haven't come in a while. So you go in the basement and you clean the room and the bathroom and you're like, okay, it's, it's all set for you. We made the bed and we put snacks down there and everything. And that's kind of the picture spiritually, morally, the people are like, God, we, we've made it ready for you. And there's this void, this emptiness. And the incredible thing is like, we're making a place for Messiah to come. Well, Messiah's there and nobody recognizes it because their focus is on their morality and on their religion and on their ethics and on the law instead of on who actually is the Messiah. They're so obsessed with empty, self-righteous practices. Jesus says you're actually aligned with the demonic. And I want you to let that sink in. It's not like Satan wants everyone to be as shockingly wicked as they can possibly be. He's not like a shock jock that's like, wow, if Jesus is over here, I want everyone to be way over here just doing perverse, terrible, excruciatingly painful, obvious things. Satan's like, all I want is for you to miss Jesus. I just don't want you, at a, I just don't want you to have him at the center and actually depend on him. And how often is it true that when you are moral and religious and, and, and engaged in this self-reformation process with your life, you're so close to Jesus that you don't realize how far away you are. And if Satan can get you this close but not put Jesus at the center, that's what's going on here. These people are manipulating Jesus with their own moralistic motivations and religious practices. And it's the same root problem as number one, Jesus isn't at the center. The demand, the expectation, I've cleaned up my life. Now come and visit is at the center. And so we don't miss the fact that this is the problem. Jesus simply isn't at the center. Matthew gives us one more story that kind of drives this point home. Verse 46, while Jesus was speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak with him. So here we have someone not relying on religious posturing or religious practices, they're relying on religious pedigree. Because who are these people interrupting Jesus? It's his family. It's like mom, his brothers. And where are they? They're outside. Where's Jesus? Inside. And Matthew is making the point that even Jesus' own family was not centered on Jesus. They're off living their lives, like probably being pretty good, moral, ethical Jews, probably attending synagogue, probably keeping a lot of the law. But even for Jesus, the other gospels tell us, even for Jesus, his immediate family had a different agenda for his life than what Jesus had for his own life. 
And they kept interrupting him like, hey, get with the program, Jesus. And they're like, look, we, we, we go way back. What are you, 30, 31 years old now? Like, I raised you, okay? I, I took care of you. And, and they're using this former proximity to Jesus, this, this pedigree, this heritage, as a way of saying, you need to get out here, stop teaching the crowds, it's time to come home. I wonder if we ever make some of those kinds of demands on God where there's some reliance on like spiritual pedigree. Some of you may kind of subconsciously even pray like, look, Jesus, I've been going to church for a lot of years. I've been reading the Bible for a lot of years. I've been trying to do the right thing for a lot of years. I got this spiritual heritage in my blood. I've kind of like always been a Christian. Now get out here and do me a favor. And what that is, that kind of presumption is like, I've got this pedigree. I've got this proximity to Jesus. And you see how subtle these missteps are because they seem spiritual. They seem religious. But they're all ways that we shift Christ from being the blazing center of our lives to the periphery. And then we're building our life, our meaning, our purpose, our identity on something else. But now I want you to come back to these same three short stories and I want you to notice that Jesus is showing us three things about true discipleship. And here's the important contrast, okay? That's the negative. He's like, don't do that. Don't rely on your spiritual posturing. Don't rely on your spiritual practices. Don't rely on your spiritual pedigree, your heritage of like, I've been going to church for a long time. He's like, true discipleship now, and there, and there are three parallel points here. He's gonna say spiritual or true discipleship discerns something it depends on something and it does something. Okay, discern something. Verse 39. Jesus says, okay, remember they're coming to him, these religious leaders, and they're like, Jesus, we demand that you show us a sign. Verse 39, Jesus says, I'm not going to give this generation any sign except the sign of Jonah, which is kind of cryptic. You're like, what's that? Well, go on to the next verse, verse 40. He says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now, here's what's interesting. If you remember the story of Jonah, the Old Testament prophet, and even if you're like, I'm not a Christian, but I'm here, you've probably heard the story about the guy that got thrown overboard and swallowed by the, the whale or the giant fish or the shark or the sea monster or whatever that thing was that swallowed him for three days. Okay, that's this story. And as best we know from scripture and from history, Jonah did not roll into Nineveh which was the capital city of the Assyrian empire, like the enemies, the Jews hated enemies, the adversaries, the people that were oppressing them. And God's like, go preach to Nineveh. And he's like, nah, I'm not doing that. And that's how he ended up overboard and in the belly of this creature. But we, we understand when he gets to Nineveh, he's not actually doing any signs. He's not doing miracles. The fact of the matter is Jonah himself was the sign. Okay? The man was the sign. And, and, and here's what I mean. After you spent, uh, yeah, I looked this up historically. After you've been three days and three nights in swimming around in digestive gastric fluids and acids, we know from science, this guy comes out basically bleached. And the guy goes to Nineveh and everybody knows, okay, this is a Jew, a bleached Jew, okay? 
Uh, he looks like he has an appearance like he's been in gastric juices for three days and three nights. He's been spat up on the shore. He comes marching in one day and it doesn't matter in a sense what he says. Israel's enemies take one look at this guy and recognize the true God is at work. The fact that Jonah is standing here telling us anything means Israel's God is up to something in our city and we better pay attention and we better repent at his message, okay? Now Jesus comes and he says, the only sign I'm gonna give is like the sign of Jonah. And this is what he says, the son of man, which is Jesus' favorite title for himself. He's saying, I will be in the heart of the earth, not the, not the belly of a fish, but in the heart of the earth, three days and three nights. And when I come out, the world will know God is at work in me, through me. Okay, this will be the testimony. And we know in hindsight what Jesus was talking about. Because in very short time, Jesus is gonna be crucified. And what he's saying to all of us in every generation is the only sign you need is my death, burial, and resurrection. Because when I come walking out of my grave on Easter morning, the world's gonna know I am the son of God. And I have come out because I'm the one who has put death to death and, and anything else that you were quibbling about in your mind or arguing about in your mind or, or not completely settled in your mind, he's like, when I put death to death and not walk out of an ocean, but walk out of my tomb, you'll have all the evidence you need. I'm the true Messiah. And he says, that's the only sign I'm going to give you. Which, by the way, this would make a great Easter sermon. We have the only sign we need. And if you're wrestling with like, well, what about because I wrestle with this too, okay? What about the way that this Christian leader hurt me? What about the way that the church can be so hypocritical sometimes and miss really obvious things while, like, as Jesus would say, like straining at gnats and swallowing camels? Like, I really struggle with that. Yeah, we do too. But he's like, stop looking at broken, failed leaders and Christians and start looking at the Savior who walked out of the grave, because that's the only sign you need. Is this true? Is this real? Okay. Now he goes on, verse 42. And he says, The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Okay, what's this about? If you flip back to 1 Kings 10 or 2 Chronicles 9... You read this story about the Queen of Sheba, which is this somewhere in the Arabian Peninsula, Sheba, okay? So from a distance, she's hearing about David's son, King Solomon, which was the greatest king in Israel's history in terms of wealth. And the, the expansion of Israel's kingdom was the greatest under King Solomon. She's like, I'm hearing about this. I got to come see this for myself. And 1 Kings 10 and 2 Chronicles 9 tells this story that, that Solomon gladly gives her a tour. Like, well, here's the temple. Here's my palaces. Here's my storehouses with wealth. Here's all this stuff that I've accumulated. And she's asking him questions and picking his brain. And she's listening to him talk. Now, here's the important thing. 1 Kings 10.9 says, when she sees and hears the wisdom of Solomon, she recognizes who's behind it. She says this, blessed be Yahweh, your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel. Okay, do you see the link between Jonah and the queen of Sheba? In both stories, it's like this. When the, when the people of Nineveh, Nineveh saw the bleached prophet walk off the beach, and I know he walked a long way after he walked off the beach, but when they see the bleached prophet, the bitter man saying, repent or God's gonna destroy you. Or maybe he didn't even say repent or if, he just said, yet 
so many days and God's gonna wipe you out. Okay, bye. I said, I said what God wanted me to say. And they're like, wow, God is at work in him. And the queen of Sheba takes a look at the wisdom of Solomon and she's like, wow, the true God is behind this. Okay. Now here's Jesus and the text says, greater than Solomon, greater than Jonah, even greater than the temple itself, verse six. And the religious leaders can't figure out he's from God. They're like, we think he's from Satan. Okay, that's why I said true discipleship discerns something. Okay, it discerns that this Jesus of Nazareth is not only the true son of man, he's the son of God. It says here, we need to discern his unique identity. That he is the greater prophet, the greater priest, the greater king than anyone who ever came before it. And the only person that those three offices came together in the Bible as the greatest version of any of them is the Messiah, like the sent one from God, okay? So what we're to discern is he has unparalleled worth as the suffering servant who will sacrifice his life on a cross and go and be buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later come bursting out never to die again. And Jesus is saying, true discipleship will never treat me as a means to an end, I'm the end. Don't come to me making demands, recognize I'm Lord and Savior and King. Discern that. Now, number two, going on positively, the second story. True discipleship not only discerns something, it depends on something. And this is the lesson of the parable of the, the man who's like, oh, sweet, I've been freed from de a demon. I'm going to moralistically self-reform. I'm going to clean up my life. I'm going to hope that God rewards my piety with his presence. And Jesus is saying, this, this is the lesson, though Jesus never explicitly says it. Here's the lesson of that parable. Jesus is saying, what's the alternative to cleaning up your life and ending up in a better, bigger mess than ever before? Because you didn't realize that, that self-righteousness, self-reformation is an inch away just simply working for Satan. He's like, the alternative is coming to God in your desperation, in your brokenness, still filthy, still like, I don't even know how to organize this stuff, God, but I need you to fix it. That's, that's his invitation. He's like, stop trying to clean up your own lives. You can't, you can't organize everything. You can't scrub every nook and cranny where I could look. Just come to me broken and let me take care of what else is going on in your life. This is what the, the, the Puritan writer Thomas Chalmers called the expulsive power of a new affection. This is what Jesus is inviting you to. Then instead of like cleaning up your life because you're like, I know it's the right thing to do. And if I do this, maybe God will answer my prayers a little bit more. He, the, the idea of expulsive power and new affection is like we need to invite Jesus to come in with all of his power, with all of his presence, with all of his goodness. And us to look at that and be like, that's a love I've never seen before. That's a grace I've never seen before. God, you are so patient with me. You are so forgiving. It is in your heart to reconcile me to you in my brokenness and to say like that has captured my heart, that has captured my imagination. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever experienced in my life. Why would I want the sin? Why would I want the self-righteousness when I can have the presence and power of God at work in my life? That's the explosive power of a new affection. Okay, don't, don't judge me for this illustration. 
but many years ago, like half a lifetime ago, I met a girl on eHarmony, okay? Yeah, buddy. <laughs> Thank you. Um, as one does on eHarmony, if the rest of you don't know, you, 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 you don't even know who this person is, but you start asking open-ended questions and kind of like answering questions and you're communicating, right? You're building a relationship virtually. Um, so I got to a point of like a few emails back and forth or they, I guess they weren't even emails, whatever they were, like a few communications back and forth. I was like, oh, this girl seems pretty interesting. Um, I, maybe I'll drive down to, I think it was Colorado Springs and, and visit her. And then in the middle of like, do I go down or do I have a few more communications? Like right in the middle of that, I met Marty. And we had a date and then we had a second date and then we had a third date. And then, I mean, by the time we're like the second or third date, like I never thought of this other girl like again until a sermon illustration, okay? Um, I, was, I was telling our teenage daughter years later, I was like, this is what happened. I was talking to this girl on eHarmony. Then, I mean, you, you know, like met Marty. And uh, obviously that, like, that story has been written. And I'm, if you don't know and you're watching online, whatever, I'm married to Marty, okay? Um, so I, t- I was telling this to my teenage daughter. And she's like, Dad, you ghosted that first girl. And I was like, no, see, we don't need to be pejorative. We don't need to be negative. That is the expulsive power of a new affection. That's what that is, okay? What's Jesus saying? He's saying, your house is empty. Your house is barren. Like, I'm not looking at you. I'm not loving you. I'm not seeking you because you have something to offer me. You're a mess. Do you depend on me moving in with that kind of expulsive power where, because like I'm saying this sincerely about my wife, it was just such a joy to spend time with her. And some of you who are like longtime friends to see like you get to know her and what a joy, like we all had together. There's just like something new has moved into the neighborhood and this is really good. And Jesus is like, can I move into the neighborhood and not just into the neighborhood, but into the center of your heart? And will you depend on me to do everything else you need done? Because that's where true discipleship lands. Okay. Uh, True discipleship discerns something. It depends on something. Last thing, it does something. This is the last story here, uh, verses 48 through 50. Uh, Remember the mother and brothers are outside. Jesus is inside. They're like, hey, get out here. We need to talk to you. Time to go home now, the other gospels tell us. Jesus, verse 48, says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother, or excuse me, is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus is saying, True discipleship doesn't presume on some proximity to Jesus. Some, some pedigree, some heritage of like, I've, I've been around with a past history and some like quasi-spiritual things. He's like, true discipleship is all in with Jesus doing the will of the Father. Jesus is building a new family, he says, and this is what it looks like. And I don't want to isolate the third point because he's not saying, listen, he's not saying, let me replace one kind of moralism with a new kind of moralism. 
So he's not like, I'm building a new family. And what it looks like is I'm looking for people who are doing the will of the Father and you get in and everybody else is out versus just like the law, the Torah. So put it all together because this all happened on the same day at the same time, okay? What he's saying is true discipleship doesn't look just like doing, but where's the doing coming from? The doing is coming from discerning who he is. I see you are greater than Solomon in your kingship of your people. I see you are greater than the temple in terms of mediating a right relationship with God, even though I'm coming to you with my sin and my trespass and you're washing it away by your blood. I see that you're greater than Jonah the prophet or any other prophet because you're the true prophet. You are the word. And I'm discerning in your words that in the way that Jonah went away and was as good as dead, you're gonna go away and you are dead, but you have the keys of death and you're coming back. And when you walk out again on Easter morning, I should discern that you are Lord and God. And my whole life, it would be crazy for me to center my life on anyone other than you. That's what I'm called to discern. Then I'm called to depend and I'm called to depend and trust and have faith, not, not working, working, working to clean up my life, but to depend and to say, God, you do this in my life because I'm, I'm struggling to do it. And when I do do it, I realize I'm just leaving myself bare and naked because if, if you try to do the moralistic game and you're good at it, okay? And I say this as someone who was good at it, you become an incredibly arrogant person. Doing the work of Satan. I'm almost like, I, I need God a little bit. Man, I do not want to need God a little bit. I want to be like, man, without you, God, without you, Jesus, there, there's nothing and I am nothing and I have nothing. So now in that context, like now, how am I serving God? Now, how am I doing the will of the Father out of gratitude with his power at work in me? with this explosive power of a new affection, just so in love with Jesus because he's been, before I cared about him, so in love with me. There's no substitute for centering your life on the presence of Jesus. And my fear as we prayed upstairs before the service, for this service, is that most of you, as a part of Park Church or even guests in this general culture, you're not at danger of missing the centrality of Jesus because you're just dead on the run and you are as far from God as you could possibly imagine. My fear is that you'll be really close. So close that you think he's the center. So close that people around you think he's the center of your life, but he's not. On our one-year anniversary, and I'll, I'll never forget this because it was another example of my cosmic stupidity. One-year anniversary, uh, we went back to Napa, San Francisco, and we're, we're back at the Oakland airport get, getting ready to fly home at the end of this vacation trip anniversary. And uh, as is always the case, Marty used to travel a lot for her work in real estate. And so she was like a primo class, like first person to board Southwest. 
Okay, that's where her status was. And I had like uh, ant status or like earthworm status. And so she'd be like booking and be like, even though you're my traveling companion and your ticket costs like $5 on top of my ticket, you still get to board with like C, the C60s and 80s people, right? So, and we already had worked out this routine where, you know, she goes on first and like goes back a couple rows, gets a nice seat and then saves a seat for me. We get to sit together, chat on the plane, all that, it's fun. Um, and I'm just waiting, waiting, waiting. Well, this particular time, I was like, okay, she's gone. And like, no joke, I like pull out my laptop, pull out my Bible. I'm like, I got like, you know how Southwest boards, right? So I'm like, I got like 15, 20 minutes easy. I start working on my sermon and I get deep in thought. It was really good. It's powerful. <laughs> and uh, all of a sudden I get a text from Marty and she's like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm right here. There was nobody else in that waiting area. And I like get, throw my stuff together and go over and the door to like the, the, the walkway to the plane is shut. And I'm like, oh snap, and it's locked. So I turn to the nearest Southwest person with like their, their Southwest uniform on and I'm like, hey, sorry, I wasn't paying attention. I was writing a sermon. And so can you open this door for me? Cause I got to get to my wife. And this woman was like, no, I don't have that authority. I don't have that security clearance. Like the door is shut, it's shut. I was like, there, so who can you call that has those codes that we've talked about? Um, long story short, praise, praise God, I, I, I got on the plane. But what I realized is if I didn't get on that plane, I was not going back to Denver with my wife uh, from our anniversary trip. Again, my fear is that some of you are like, it, it's not like you should be in Oakland and you're in Timbuktu or in Paris. It's not even that you're somewhere else in Oakland besides the airport. It's not even that you're at the wrong gate. It's just like you're, you're, you're that close. And like me, you're probably writing a sermon. And I'm good. I'm good. And Jesus is saying, there's no substitute for centering your life on me. Like, get on the plane. Okay. That's all I have to say. That's, that's this text. Don't come close to centering your life on Jesus. Don't center your life on religion. Don't center your life on morals and ethics as good as those are. Center your life on the presence and power of Jesus and let him work. Okay? Um, let's pray. As we do that, if you're getting baptized in a moment, in a few moments, um, we'll let you slip out and get changed, get to what you need. Um, I'll also say, if you're here this morning and you're like, I, I need to take that next step of faith in being baptized, and I'll explain this in a moment, but this, is, uh, this water doesn't save you, but this water is a symbol of identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And someone being baptized this morning is saying, like, that's what I believe. That's what I want to show in front of my church family. So if you're here and maybe you're like, I didn't even bring a change of clothes. I didn't plan for this. I'd say, take your cell phone out of your pocket go in the back and talk to an elder real quick so we can know that you're a follower of Jesus and we can do this this morning, okay? Um, as I do this, um, I will ask, like we have a couple different members of our prayer team, if you would just stand in the back or around the sides and if you want during this time before we take communion together, if you want someone to pray with you, pray over you, I just invite you to just sneak out to the back and find someone and we'd be delighted to just depend on God together. All right, let's pray, and then we'll take communion. 
have a baptism. Um, someone also, we're trying to notify the oldest kids class because they're going to come and sit down here in the front so some of our elementary school kids can see what this is to follow Jesus in this way. But all right, let's pray. Um, Father, just, man, don't let us miss the joy of salvation in Jesus, the way that the religious leaders missed, or the way that many of the crowds missed. We don't want to just be curious. We don't want to just be in awe of your power and your miracles and your signs, but then not actually follow you in daily discipleship on the way of the cross. We don't want to replace radical dependence on you with morals and ethics and be like that close to the kingdom of God in many ways doing the will of the Father but from the wrong heart motives. Jesus, if there's someone here this morning and there probably is who is not yet your follower, not yet just crying out, Jesus, save me. Lord, bring them to that place this morning where they discern that you love them that you shed your blood for them on the cross to, to wash away the guilt and the shame and the stain of their sin. It's gone in you. And they are, they are liberated. The chains are gone. They're not bound to their past. They're not bound to the worst things they've ever done. They're not, they're not bound to building their own reputation. They are free in Jesus. We are free in Jesus. Lord, for all of us, I pray for this expulsive power of a new affection that instead of getting that room ready for you to come and occupy, we just acknowledge, hey, I, th I think it's a mix of clean and dirty. I, I think it's a mix of good and bad. And I don't know that it's actually gonna get any better if I just work, 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 work. So Jesus, would you move in? Spirit, would you move in? And show me a love, show me a mercy Show me a kindness that just grips my heart with love for you so that no affection in this world is even close. Jesus, help us to depend on you and not depend on ourselves, our performance, not to depend on the fact that we fit in with the culture around us in so many plethora of subjective ways that we can't even quantify. It's just, we look about right. Thank you this morning for the gifts that you've given us in the Lord's table and coming to you, Father, through the shed blood and the broken body of your son, Jesus. Coming to you and because you first identified with us, we can now identify with you and have true union with you. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.